Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. And my guest today is Scott Blaze, co-founder of the Global Sanctuary for Elephants. Blaze has a long-storied pachyderm-oriented pedigree. He co-founded the Elephant Sanctuary in Tennessee in 1995, while the Global Sanctuary for Elephants, whose initial facility is the Elephant Sanctuary Brazil, is currently marking its 10th anniversary. This type of milestone provides a valuable opportunity to take stock of key achievements, as well as reflect on some challenges that he his wife Kat and their colleagues have faced over the course of these 10 years. Think for a moment how difficult it would be to create an elephant sanctuary even if things were relatively ideal. For example, you're from the state where you're launching a sanctuary. However, remember the sanctuary is to house elephants, not exactly a simple animal to fully accommodate. Now, imagine you're not in the U.S., you're an American living in Brazil, setting out to establish an elephant sanctuary there, trying to navigate around a somewhat confounding set of laws and regulations. For example, in a previous interview, Blaze told me nonprofit organizations in Brazil aren't able to secure loans. So we'll discuss and salute a decade of Blaze and company providing refuge to a number of elephants, six currently make their home at Elephant Sanctuary Brazil, and ask him to look ahead a bit to the next decade when I speak with Scott Blaze in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Also coming up later in today's program, we'll likely hear an animal song, maybe an ode to a Labrador, arcing back to an earlier area where hearing one or more animal songs was commonplace on Talking Animals. Right now, though, let's uh, talk elephants with Scott Blaze, with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. And joining us by Zoom from Brazil, this is Scott Blaze back on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Duncan. How are you? Thanks for this opportunity again. Oh, thanks. Great, great to speak with you again for sure on Talking Animals. It seems like we've got a lot, a lot of cool ground to cover. So, um, but first, happy anniversary, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, listening to your intro that uh, talked about these. The, imagine building a sanctuary in Brazil, and uh, we have that clear imagination. <laughs> we know very clearly, uh, but it did bring up back a lot of memories in a very short intro that you did. Yeah, well, I want to ask you about some of those things. I know there was definitely uh, more than a few challenges, as, as I kind of noted, there would have been even under more sort of familiar or ideal circumstances. So I think that'll be interesting to get into in a bit. But first, um, I think we discussed this actually in one of our past interviews, but as a guy who's worked with elephants for some 30 years, let me ask you, what makes them special? What makes them magical? <laughs> uh, that's a million-dollar question. Uh, you probably asked me the same thing last time, and I probably had the same answer with a chuckle and no words. Uh, you know, Duncan, it's there surely are no words to describe truly what makes elephants so magical. Well, what, what do you? What do you so let's, let's try another way. What 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 do you love working about working with them? Which, since that's constituted a huge hunk of your life, it's obviously there's a profound connection and great satisfaction and 
passion. So why is that then? Let's try it that way. Yeah, and that's a great way to rephrase it. You know, for us, you know, here uh, with Global Sanctuary for Elephants and all of our team here in Brazil, it's kind of along the same lines. It's trying to give them their life back, you know, and when you see that transformation, when you see what they, when you see their evolution, you start to see all the layers of damage that have been done and you start to see the profound resilience that they have and capacity to overcome hurdles that are unimaginable to, to most humans. And, you know, you see these animals that just seemingly turn a new leaf. And uh, for, for us, one of the most magical parts is seeing the, the true being, the true self, the true individual emerge through the chaos of 50 years of trauma. No, that's got to be profound to, to, to watch that just unfold in, in front of your eyes and, and, and not only watch that, but know that you're kind of cultivating that. We've been doing this a long time. I've been working with elephants for 35 years now. We've watched a lot of elephants overcome those hurdles, and it never leaves us with anything except a sense of awe. Yeah. A sense of um, amazement with, again, with what they can go through. And there's a, a, uh, a new documentary that is starting to emerge uh, in a few uh, select settings right now, a few, a few film festivals. Uh, about Ramba, an elephant from Chile. She was the last surface elephant in Chile and a fundamental reason why Elephant Sanctuary Brazil was developed. And in that film, you see, and through the experience of her transfer, we saw an elephant who is, you know, 65 years old. She has been to her circus her whole life, wild caught, lived isolated in, you know, in, in traveling throughout South America. Um, spent six years waiting in limbo for sanctuary to be developed and emerge. And you saw an elephant that was struggling with a long-term health compromise. And you see her on the road, and, you know, it wasn't the easiest trip for her. Because uh, of her age, because of her health compromise. And within hours of her arrival, one of the documentarians said to me, how is this possible? You know, look at her, you know, and she looks totally different. And then 24 hours, not even 24 hours, 12 hours later, the next morning, the documentarians arrived again. And she just, uh, the producer just stood there. You know, with her jaw on the floor saying, this is not the same Ramba, you know, and nothing has happened yet. She hasn't had the chance to explore. She hasn't had the chance to see the other elephants. But there is something profound about having a space that is dedicated for elephants to be individuals, to, to be who they were always meant to be. And they sense it immediately. And the transformation starts for the first second, not even day one. It starts the very first seconds they step onto sanctuary grounds. Wow. Well, that raises a, a couple of questions. First of all, just so people can, can keep an eye out for it, what is the documentary that you're referring to? What is its title? It's called The Rumba Effect. Ah, okay. And I'm not sure that she's going to be happy that I'm promoting on public news right now, uh, but we'll be ahead of the game. It's pretty amazing. You know, whenever anybody does a, a, a documentary about anything related to elephants, we always hold our breath, especially one that's about our, our work, because it's hard to capture the true essence of what sanctuary is and what it means for these elephants. And, uh, and we were, we were again without words to describe the sentiment after watching the film. So we're really excited that it's going to start coming out. I think it's first, uh, previewing, uh, open preview was last week, uh, really well received. And then, uh, in the coming months, it's going to start going to additional film festivals and they've already been invited to participate in a few very 
prominent ones, so we're excited to have that coming out. But be patient with it. It will make its round, and it will be available in public in the hopefully not too distant future. But it's gonna, it's, it's impactful. That's no. That sounds great. It sounds like it'll be a while before m- most of us can can uh, see it. But um, unless you happen to be lucky enough to live near where it's uh, sh- screening at one of the film festivals, but, uh, but we'll yeah. be putting it on our website. Uh, you know, because I know people are going to want to watch it. So as it starts, I think there's a website that she's putting up for the Rumba Effect as well, and we'll definitely put it on our website anytime it's going to be at a film festival, uh, wherever the region is. We'll make announcements so people can, can stay tuned because it's. it's it's well worth making the effort to go see. Yeah. So back to some of the description that uh, that uh, you gave about Ramba in her first day, basically, or even hours there. So did someone uh, suspect that she was going to have a particularly transformative experience? I mean, the, the, you, you described that the, the documentary filmmakers were there as she was being transferred and watched her first hours and barely even her first day and already saw some notable change. So did people kind of anticipate this and that's why there was a documentary already kind of in place or at least the beginnings of one? Yeah, the documentary, it just started with somebody wanting to film to just to document the journey of what it means to transfer an elephant. It wasn't necessarily to, you know, profile all that Rumba had been through. It was the transformation of or the transition of one elephant from a solitary environment to a, a sanctuary setting. Uh, being the last elephant in Chile, it was a little bit more of an attraction. But they didn't set out to make a full-length documentary. Um, at first, it was going to be a 15-minute short little, you know, uh, iPhone documentary. And it turned into, you know, a, a full-length feature because of how, how impactful it really was. But we always know elephants are going to change. And part of what drove us to develop Elephant Sanctuary, I'm sorry, Global global Sanctuary for Elephants, was our experience at the Elephant Sanctuary in Tennessee. And, you know, when we started there, almost uh, 1995, when we started that sanctuary, we had no idea what to expect when sanctuary was created. After 16 years of working there and managing the sanctuary progress, uh, development, and the operations and seeing the transition that elephant happened, uh, that occurred with elephants, we got invited to help in Brazil to help create a solution to, because there was advancing legislation to prevent performing, performing animals. Without a solution, it just, these elephants stay in compromised states. Part of our drive was not only to be a part of the solution, but because we know the impact. And we have seen that transition that happens time and time again. And that is what drives us through all those hurdles, through the roadblocks, through the struggles, is because we know the difference that it makes. Uh, so Ramba is one example, but another elephant that came from uh, Argentina, it's a actually really important story to show what's happening in South America. It is essentially the, not the closure, but the full transformation of two of the most prominent zoos in Argentina, where they have both said, we are done with this outdated model. We have to do better. We know our animals are suffering. And they, at great expense, uh, financial expense and, and the, the expense of time to the team, have selected sanctuaries, international sanctuaries. Most of them are credited by the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries. And they've relocated the vast majority of their animals, uh, dating uh, numbering into the uh, several hundred, uh, if you include some of the small domestics and small uh, animals in indigenous to Argentina, I think into the several thousands animals relocated to appropriate sanctuaries. Um, and when we brought their first elephant from uh, Buenos Aires, 
they uh, were sitting there with the director, uh, one of the coordinator for all the, the relocations, and one of their lead veterinarians. And they sat there in awe the, next, the day after her arrival, and they said, you all told us what to expect. And we all believed in you. We believed in Sanctuary. It's why we're doing this. But we had no idea it would happen so quickly. And they said, this elephant, our elephant, that we have known for 25 years, has never looked so bright. And this is just 12 hours after arrival. Wow. It happens over and over and over again, Duncan. And there are no words to describe it. And there are, there's no limit yeah. to the depth of transformation. Well, that must, that must be super powerful because even on your longest, hardest, most frustrating day, just to, to look over and see one of the elephants that's in your care and just see what, you know, picture what they were like when the, the first day they arrived and what they're looking at back at you now. I mean, that must just, you know, fuel you over whatever hurdles that you're trying to overcome that given day or week or whenever it might be. Yeah, it's tough. You know, it, 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 we have a new podcast that we're doing and, and they're going through kind of a little bit of the transition that we've gone through and what it took to make happen. And we're still only talking about a portion of the the true experience because there's not enough time in each podcast, but a portion of the true experience of what it, of, of the hurdles of the challenges. Um, hold on one second, Duncan. Sure. Yeah, they're looking at something over there. It might be a snake. Do you want to see if they're, I think they're calling on the radio. Sorry, I'm looking over and uh, some of our team members are staring at the ground at something and uh, it may be that we have a visiting snake that needs to be relocated. So I got uh, you. just checking out. We had a, we have several, no, we're living, we're in the middle of nowhere, Brazil. Yeah. Um, it is idyllic for elephants. It is. And when you talk about looking over and seeing the elephants, it is, that's a huge part of it. You know, when we have those hurdles when we have those difficult days, we look over, you know, look down into the valley and see elephants just doing their thing, or you hear them rumbling and, and bellowing and, and trumpeting in the middle of the night in total celebration. It reinforces everything that we're doing. But on the other side of it, looking over and knowing that there's probably a very beautiful wild snake going through the habitat, uh, going through the property, it's equally um, uh, amazing to be here in this location protecting this farm, which was once used for you know large-scale cattle farming, and we're watching a transition of the from a reemergence of the natural habitat, uh, of the natural for, uh, foliage, and with that, an attraction back to the natural fauna as well. And we're seeing just uh, countless encounters with wild species on a near daily basis. Uh, we had somebody visiting from, from Belgium. She said, "Every day I see something different." Uh, it's pretty remarkable to to be wow. a part of this project on all on all sides. Yeah, no doubt. It really sounds like it, and it sounds like even if there's a snake that might be a little cause for concern temporarily, that's just all part of the uh, the the restoration. It sounds like of that habitat. Yeah, it is. You know, we have a uh, last night. My uh, wife went out with uh, a new stray dog, and she's learning what it means to be a sanctuary and a sanctuary resident because they're they can't just chase wildlife. So she we're taking her out at different times, so she learns you know wildlife are to be respected and. Um, she, they walked over and there was a big red tail boa, uh, by one of the chicken houses, uh, too small to cause a problem with one of the chickens. Uh, but, um, beautiful. I mean, just absolutely stunning animals, you know, whether they're a snake or spider or whatever it is that people are often concerned with just absolutely stunning in all ways. Yeah. Well, this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Scott Blaze. 
co-founder of the Global Sanctuary for Elephants, whose initial facility, the Elephant Sanctuary Brazil, is celebrating its 10th anniversary. He also co-founded the Elephant Sanctuary in Tennessee. He's speaking with us via Zoom from Brazil, where the sanctuary is located. If you'd like to ask him a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. Um, Scott, so if I have this right, as I just no- mentioned, but just in case there's something that needs to be corrected, Elephant Sanctuary Brazil represents the first facility under the umbrella Global Sanctuary for Elephants. Um, so w- the first of what might become like sort of an international coalition of, of elephant sanctuaries, is that pretty close to correct? Yeah, it is. You know, when, when we left the sanctuary in Tennessee, we left knowing that we wanted to be able to help internationally because there are, we saw a lot of progressing act- actions, but not a lot of solutions. The solution is hard. The solution is, is excruciating to build. It's very slow. There's a lot of hurdles. There's a lot of roadblocks. And what pushes us past the roadblocks, as I said before, is knowing the transition that will come, knowing the impact that it will have. And so when we started Global Sanctuary for Elephants, the idea was to let's help build sanctuaries internationally, um, one at a time to not get too far ahead of ourselves, uh, while building a team that can help also with international elephant care. Uh, there's just not a lot of folks out there in the world that have seen the experience that we have had with the transition of captive elephants going from small captive environments or zoos and circuses and into a sanctuary life, what it means to help them through those initial stages of rehabilitation, what it means to help them find a voice. And our goal is to help people develop sanctuaries. How we help is going to be different with each situation. We're here in Brazil, living in Brazil, um, you know, to help this make, you know, happen because it is there is an, an unexpected number of hurdles and challenges here in Brazil. Uh, but at the same time, we also offer a voice and we do consult with others. Uh, many conversations that nobody knows about uh, just because it doesn't need to be published that way. You know, just when anybody has a question about elephant recovery and um, our colleagues at Elephant Haven have talked to us many times um, and working with a few other groups uh, just to offer our experience. So if it is just a few conversations over the phone uh, or on-site visits or being what you're doing here, living on-site to help develop a sanctuary directly, we're just here to help give elephants in your life. And Scott, um, we might have touched on this before, so forgive me if this is uh, already spelled out, Um, but remind me why Brazil was the first location under the Global Sanctuary for Elephants, uh, you know, idea. Yeah, when, uh, when we left the sanctuary in Tennessee, almost immediately we were asked to help remove Ramba from the circus. Uh, it was just within a few weeks of leaving the sanctuary in Tennessee. And uh, while we were down there help, uh, with their final attempt to relocate her, she had already, it's kind of a weird story with her. She had been confiscated, but without a place to take care of her, she was left in the custody of the circus, although they couldn't, take, they couldn't transport her, they couldn't use her. So we ended up going down to uh, Chile because the judge gave just 10 days and one last chance to move it because other folks had made attempts to move the elephant from the circus without success. Um, and they had already located another small facility nearby that could help hold her temporarily. Around that same time, uh, we were contacted through our colleagues uh, Elephant Voices, uh, which is Dr. Joyce Poole and Pater Granley, uh, both renowned for their work in Africa. I think they've been a guest on your show a couple of times. Yeah. Um, just remarkable folks. And they said, 
you know, knowing that you're not at the Sinks Ray in Tennessee anymore, what's the chance you could help us out by doing a feasibility study of what it would take to build a sanctuary in Brazil, in part connected to the federal legislation that was being pushed through to ban performing animals. Uh, they were proactive enough and aware enough to think about the this second stage of it. Again, progressive legislation is amazing, but without a solution, it leaves elephants often more compromised. You know, look, case in point with Ramba, you can't travel anymore. You're not making money for the circus, but they're still having to take care of you. They started to begrudge her, although they still didn't want to let her go. Uh, they wanted to regain full custody and put her back on, on traveling as a performing animal. Mm. Uh, so they contacted us. Uh, honestly, having just left the sanctuary in Tennessee, and because of the amount of, of emotional and physical investment um, it takes, I wasn't quite ready to do it full time. Um, my wife and I, Kat and I said, no, we, we can start working on the steps, but let's, I need to breathe a little bit. I need to recover a little bit. Yeah. And it was in that stage of recovery uh, of still having other jobs. We had to pay our daily bills. Uh, but in normal nine to five jobs uh, that didn't require 24 hour <laughs> preoccupations with safety and animal care, or, or staff safety, financial concerns, et cetera. Uh, but it was during that time that we both said, you know, we're doing a disservice by not using the skills that we have been given by elephants to try to further the lives of other elephants, to try to enhance the lives of other elephants. Yeah. Uh, and that was the initial step. Uh, they had a group here working in Brazil, a volunteer group of uh, elephant voices uh, that was working on the legislation. They started opening up some doors uh, to try to put some pieces in place for sanctuary development uh, and to try to, in a, in a very brief uh, summary, punctuate the hurdles. The group here in Brazil had uh, land, money, and a car that we were going to be able to use starting right away back in when we first moved to the same moved here to Brazil in 2014, and within 24 hours of arrival, uh, they said, "Sorry, the money's not available." Mm. Um, and within a week of arrival, we realized the land had no permits at all, had no data, had no no title, no licensing at all, which was going to be a monumental hurdle to use and a battle that could take up to 10 years before construction could even begin. Uh, and then around the same time, the city that was going to loan us the car said, "Oh, that's not an option either." So. Uh, moved to Brazil with a bunch of bunch of promise to find out that none of that existed, uh, but we still had a you know advancing legislation zoos that had already asked us to take their elephants off their hands that they couldn't take care of them. Uh, we had several prosecutors that were ready to move elephants to us as soon as possible. Had Ramba in Chile waiting for a uh, long term home, um, and so we said, no, let's stick it out. Let's find a solution. Let's make it happen because these elephants are going to need somewhere. Wow. Well, thank God from from the elephant standpoint that that's what you did because it sounds like there was a lot of pieces to this puzzle. But the key thing was like if you guys were going to continue the work that you had done for so many years in Tennessee and and basically in a sense solve the problems that were presented by these various elephants, some of whom didn't have anywhere to go. And uh, and that was probably starting to look dicey, as you say, kind of in the Rama situation. Um, so... But it's, I was going to ask you at one point, like what some of the challenges were, but I think we've heard <laughs> quite a few right after that. <laughs> yeah. So that was just the beginning. <laughs> you know, we thought that was going to be okay. We can get past it, but that was just the beginning. It's been challenging. Yeah. Um, there's there's a, there's a laundry list of challenges working in a in a new country. Um, fortunately, uh, there's a lot of really amazing folks around. There's a lot of folks that are 100 percent on board with the organization, um, and you know. Again, going back to what we said at the beginning, because of what elephants have shared with us and knowing what sanctuary can provide, that was that was the factor that made that really pushed us to happen. 
Yeah, knowing knowing that the, if he just kept going through whatever the latest challenge was, that kind of outcome for one or more of those elephants uh, that were needing a place to take refuge, that that kind of healing was going to clearly begin and begin within hours of their arrival, as we've already heard. Yeah, this is not a project that you can look at. You know, hey, look at the let's look at ten years and where we wanted to be. You know, and we want to rescue X number of elephants X number of time. You know, this has to be a project where you say. Let's do as much as we can as fast as we can. Yeah. You know, and if we can exceed that, fabulous. You know, if we can't meet that target, then that's just part of the struggle of, of working in this type of environment. Uh, but things have gone really, really well. Again, a lot of support. You have these transformations that are happening in, in Argentina that are, you know, hopefully within the next year, there will be no elephants left in Argentina. You know, that'll wow. be a, a huge milestone. Uh, that there's a lot happening, a lot that does support the sanctuary concept and sanctuary philosophy of transforming the lives of the elephants that are in our care, or not just elephants, animals that are under our care. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you, with your experience over those 35 years, I mean, you know what can happen. You've seen it happen. So the, the, it's not like, hey, I wonder if we if we take this longtime zoo elephant or circus elephant from where they've been into a sanctuary setting. I wonder if they'll feel better or do any healing or whatever. I mean, th- those answers, those questions are rhetorical because you have those answers from all your experience of seeing other similar elephants that go- have gone, you know, undergone that sort of transformation once they arrived in sanctuary. Yeah, and it's every single one. You know, those aren't unique cases. It's yeah. every single elephant that has come to sanctuary, whether it be here in Brazil, Tennessee, California, these animals, all of them, you know, France, you know, the, at Elephant Haven, these elephants all go through remarkable transformations. It is not a unique individual that experiences that, you know, and it, the frustrating part, Duncan, I think you can, you can, can re, not only relate, but really feel this is the number of times we still hear the same old rhetoric. They're going to die in transport. Our elephant won't know how to adapt. All they know is people, the people come first. They don't, they're going to miss their people. They're going to die of a broken heart. All these statements that are made time and time again with almost any zoo or circus that not wanting to move their animal, animal to, uh, elephant to a, cir- uh, a sanctuary, and none of that is true. Yeah. None of it is true. These elephants adapt almost seamlessly. The only part that doesn't make it seamless is the depth of trauma. And that is, that doesn't go away overnight. Yeah. You know, and that is, for us, it is the most beautiful, amazing, sometimes difficult part of this journey for them is watching them go through those infinite layers of recovery. And if you imagine putting a human, what they've been through, captured from the wild, you know, at infancy, two or three years old, still a suckling infant, you know, being stolen from their mom, being stolen in the family, put in a box, sent to a zoo to live in isolation for the next 30 or 40 or 50 years, or sent on a circus to perform for the next 30 or 40 or 50 years, oftentimes alone, there's going to be trauma. There is undoubtedly trauma. There's undoubtedly layers of recovery. What is most interesting is watching how they work through those. And sometimes it is through moments of isolation, moments of taking themselves out of the group so they can have their quiet time. Sometimes it is, as we saw with, with one of our elephants, Hannah, she was so excited to see other elephants that she actually overwhelmed them with her joy. And she wasn't listening to them and said, wait a minute, girl, we need a little bit of time. We don't know you yet. So you know, over-enthusiastic. 
yeah, and those two were in their own journey of emerging into a new friendship. Yeah, and and they weren't ready, quite ready for another one to come in so enthusiastically. And Hannah actually was pushed to the side for a little while. Mm. It was difficult to see, but at the same time. It was amazing to watch how she did in that process because even though she's pushed to the side, not directly with them, she was still interacting with them. She saw them. She still had some time that they would let her in and then she'd wander off on her own. It wasn't they were completely ostracizing her, but she needed time to go through that recovery. And when she came out of it at the end, when the next elephant came, which was Ramba, it was a completely different scenario. Mm. And her heart was in a different place and her head was in a different place. And she started to learn rules of what it means to be a social individual as they all are coming from these dysfunctional, dysfunctional lives into this pseudo herd, this pseudo family of all unrelated individuals. It's a process. It's yeah. a beautiful process, even in those downtimes, even when it's not this perfect rainbows and butterflies. Unfortunately, we don't see enough facilities that are talking about those downtimes. It is always presented of it's an amazing day, everything's wonderful. And even when it's not idyllic, it doesn't mean it's not wonderful. It's wonderful because they actually have a chance to go through that process yeah. and learn and rediscover what it means to truly be an elephant. And none of us live in a world where it's all rainbows and butterflies. Right. As much as we want it, that doesn't make life not worth living. <laughs> that doesn't make life, you know, you know, a, a overwhelming struggle. It's just part of the downside that makes the beautiful all the more powerful. Yeah, it sounds like Hana, for example you know, sort of essentially learn to kind of read the room and not go bonkers right off the bat, as excited as she was to see fellow elephants. And so she eventually kind of adjusted her behavior and how zealous or overzealous she was. And then that worked out. And like you say, by the time the next elephant arrived, she kind of knew what to do. Exactly. You know, she knew a lot more. She was still learning. (laughs) But she went from an elephant who we were told doesn't like other elephants, we were told is antisocial. Um, you know, she, she was aggressive. She is not aggressive by nature. She is one of the softest elephants we've ever met. Uh, she is an influencer without trying to be an influencer. She's an influencer without the selfies. You know, she doesn't want anybody to look at her and put illuminate illuminate her. But she has this quiet, very powerful grounding influence on everybody. Where just her presence alone causes everybody just to breathe a little slower to just feel a little deeper, to see a little bit more profoundly into you know who the other individuals are. And she does it just simply by being her. And it's amazing that Sanctuary has provided an opportunity for her to go through that process and discover what she can do, the impact that she can have just for being wrong. Yeah. Not because of what she's doing for anybody, not because she's trying to make a friend or trying to force anything, just her simple presence alone and the impact that has on elephants and people alike. Yeah, well, that... that- Sort of makes me wonder about when you talk about the depth of trauma. So they all arrive with some level of trauma, some some amount of depth of trauma. So is there a kind of a corresponding uh, amount of healing, or can can an elephant that's been sort of deeply traumatized and mistreated or whatever, you know, rally as much as one that's you know just sort of lived in a zoo but maybe has never really had as rough a go as maybe some circus elephants have or you know whatever the example might be i mean do you do you see sort of um parallel healing over time or is it always different just based on the elephant regardless of kind of how much depth of trauma they came in with what what they might end up with in terms of their healing 
Duncan, we have yet to see anybody that doesn't go through profound recovery. Mm-hmm. You know, and we see these scenarios where uh, we hear, hear these comments where some uh, from our, our colleagues that uh, from animal welfare groups that go to uh, take video from zoos and circuses or know of particular elephants, and sometimes they'll say, "I don't think this one is. I don't think she will be able to recover." I don't believe it. I don't believe it. With all the elephants we've worked with, I, I don't believe there's an elephant out there that does, that can't experience a profound level of recovery. Does that mean they have time to fully recover before the the negative impact of 50 years of captivity has on them emotionally or physically? It's impossible to say. Yeah. You know, uh, sometimes the physical takes over. You know, they don't have enough time. You know, Ramba was one of those cases. She had been fighting with kidney disease for years. Um, and for seven years, you know, she was given a year to live by the first veterinarians that, uh, that read the blood results when we first removed her from the circus. And we were able to keep her strong enough to get here. And she had two and a half beautiful months. We wish it was, you know, 20 years, but yeah. we'll take two and a half months over nothing because it was profound what that girl went through in that short amount of time. Yeah. Did she have a chance to fully recover? No, because she didn't have enough time here. Uh, another situation where they didn't have enough time, but doesn't negate the profound impact was the last two that came, which were a mom and daughter, Pocha and Gujamina from Mendoza, Argentina, another zoo that was that's transforming uh, and moving many animals to sanctuaries internationally. They, mom, uh, the, the calf was born in a zoo. They lived in 400 square meters of a concrete pit. Mm-hmm. Um, mom was wild caught, so she had some level of understanding of what it means to be on on, on natural ground. Yeah. Uh, the calf, uh, who at that time was 23 years old, had never experienced dirt. You know, she had concrete walls, she had concrete floors, she had concrete everything. Mm. Um, a bit of a dungeon-esque kind of barn. And uh, mom didn't look well for a couple of years before coming. But we were never able to determine exactly what's going on because of the limited diagnostic tools available uh, for determining veterinary, veterinary ailments uh, with elephants. So when they came... Uh, one of the most profound experiences for them and one of the most profound experiences in my life was watching what it meant for Pocha to see her daughter find new friends, see her daughter experience a new life, see her daughter play in the pond, see her daughter just experience this life of sanctuary. Hmm. Pocha passed away after just five months of being here, but it wasn't before she saw her daughter in a light that who knows what Pocha would ever thought. Maybe Pocha never imagined she'd be able to give that to her daughter. Yeah. You know, imagine being a parent that can't give your child anything because you're both confined to this prison cell. Right. And to finally see that after 23 years, it was amazing to watch because Pocha would actually remove herself from the social interactions and she would stand back and you could see her just watching her daughter with this, adoration, this appreciation in her face. Mm. And I don't want to be anthropomorphic by, by saying that, but it is, you see a level of emotion in them that is impossible to describe exactly what they're feeling, but you see her standing back watching her daughter and just this joy on her face. And that was her last couple of months. Five months is too short to have sanctuary, but it's better than not having sanctuary at all. And yeah. even in those five months, we saw a transformation that was beyond words meaningful for that particular elephant. No, that sounds really powerful. And just uh, uh, just the idea that she could witness 
what what it was happening with her daughter and and probably achieve a sense of peace, even if she was, you know, ailing maybe herself, uh, just to know that things were going to work out, you know, just fine for her daughter was probably so powerful. Yeah, I mean, again, I've, we've had a lot of experiences in, in our lives working with elephants, and to me, that will—that is one of the most powerful to yeah. watch that look on her face. I mean, that um, brings tears to my eyes, tears of joy, For knowing sure. what she got to experience. You know, unfortunately, when we talk about the naysayers and, and talk about what zoos say to keep elephants away from sanctuary, they'll absolutely mm-hmm. use poach's death against sanctuary. And say, look, if she only lived for five months, she would have stayed alive if she stayed in the zoo. Mm. You actually don't know that. We don't know. There's no guarantee of that. Because right. when we did necropsy on her, she had chronic disease that was probably, you know, up to a decade old. You know, this was, she had ulcers the size of a softball, you know, in her stomach. Uh, she had infection all through her abdominal cavity that was long-term chronic infection. This doesn't happen in five months. These elephants, after 50 years of yeah. improper diet, 50 years of almost no medical care, 50 years of no exercise, 50 years of no footwork, they arrive here in a very compromised physical, physical state um, that many are not can't recover from. We have, you know, still to this day, one of the leading causes of death for captive elephants are foot infections. Yeah, one of our elephants named Lady, she has chronic osteomyelitis. She will never recover from this. You know, this is this will will be her demise at some point. She will not be able to. She, her feet will give out before her body does. Mm. Otherwise, she's in good health. But her feet are so compromised, she's going to get to the point she won't be able to walk anymore. To uh, till now, she's still exploring. She's still, you know, getting uh, uh, daily foot treatments. We're trying to slow the progress as much as possible. But there is no cure for this depth. Uh, once it advances, the, this. Uh, the step, there is no recovery for it. Wow. Uh, there's only a chance to try to slow down and give her the best life possible. You know, during that time, she still explores, she still plays, she still rumbles and trumpets and has the freedom and autonomy to do what it is that lady wants to do for, for as long as she has. Yeah. And that's what we try to celebrate here is, you know, every day is special, every day is profound. And that's part of why we want to build sanctuaries as fast as possible to give more elephants a chance before it's too late for them. For sure. Well, again, this is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Scott Blaze, co-founder of the Global Sanctuary for Elephants. He was also the co-founder of the Elephant Sanctuary in Tennessee. And we're discussing the facility overseeing right now, the Elephant Sanctuary in Brazil, at its 10th anniversary. If you'd like to join this conversation with Scott, please call 813-239-9663. Email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. So with what you're describing about the impact that's, you know, profound and obviously also, you know, like instant um, makes me wonder, because it seems like at Elephant Sanctuary Brazil, there, there seems to be a, um, a pretty strict prohibition against vi- visiting the elephants, whereas sometimes other sanctuaries tend to allow at least limited visitation, typically like tied to a fundraising event, that kind of thing. So talk a little bit about the sanctuaries philosophy and the thinking behind it and where there may be some exceptions. Yeah. You know, for us, it has to go back to elephants first. Yeah. You know, and if we do anything, even if people want it, um, if we do anything that may compromise what it is that they have, then we have to reconsider. Yeah. And when you have groups come in and the elephants start coming over and exhibiting stereotypical behavior or they, we pull them away from what they would naturally be doing. 
that's a negative impact. Yeah. Uh, I do agree that people need to be able to see what facilities are doing. Uh, they need to be able to understand what's happening inside, behind the closed doors. You know, there has to be a level of transparency, but it has to be done in a way that does not create a negative impact, that does not dominate what the elephants should naturally be doing in that time, even if for, for a short period. Uh, we did have a group of, of kids come out not too long ago. They were uh, college students, and that's going to be the next phase for us to be able to open up for small groups. It's going to be starting with kids in biology and uh, biology veterinarian students at the mm -hmm. local university. Mm -hmm. uh, and we want to do a program with them where we visit uh, the, the, the college for three or four, do a three or four part series. And part of that will then they come out here for a two hour visit. Uh, one of the first things we said to them is no selfies. Yeah. And we live in a part of the world where selfies rule. I think it's happening everywhere in the world. For sure. Because selfies end up being all about the person. Yeah. And this is a day that should be all about the elephants. And, you know, we don't want this to be you in the foreground, elephants in the background. We want this to be the elephants in the foreground. And after talking about 15 or 20 minutes, about many things we talked about here, we walked down to see where the elephants were. And we were still pretty far away. Uh, the elephants were just doing their thing in a field, uh, doing their grazing and hanging out by the edge of the pond and just being easygoing sanctuary elephants yeah um and without even being close to them you know not even close enough to take a quality photo i had several students that were in tears and they're just amazing to know what they came from and mm -hmm. what they have now and we want to make sure we continue to have that level of impact when people come when yeah. people make sure that it is not about what we want from them it's not about us it's not about giving the people the opportunity to see it's about profiling what this means for elephants and unfortunately, even in the sanctuary world, we are constantly pushed to allow more visitors. Yeah. Oh, but if people can just see, oh, but if people can have this, but people want, yes, the reason why they are here, the reason why they've been compromised for so many years is because of what people want. When is it not going to be about what people want and it's not going to be what the elephants need? Yeah. And that's where we try to base everything off of what it is that these girls need. What is it that they need to be able to live in a life where they can feel safe, where they can feel protected, where they can feel they're not going to be invaded, where they can feel that this is all about them. And that's the basis of everything that we decide. Makes makes good sense. We're sort of nearing the end of our time, Scott, but I want to at least get one caller involved in the conversation. Um, hi, you're on Talking Animals with Scott Blaze. Hello, Scott. My name's Jimmy. I'm from here, and I think it's a great thing that you're doing very caring and um, I like loved elephants for a long time I did a paper on elephants when I was in school and, um, just wanted and, and I, I imagine it's just a cost a heck of a lot of money to get a sanctuary ready for elephants and what kind of wanted to just know that what type of in, uh, terrain is it in Brazil because as far as I know it's a rainforest there and I would imagine you had to get it ready for the elephants but i uh, keep up the good work I, I i'm really um impressed thank you so much for that comment and uh you know you mentioned money uh, duncan we haven't talked about funding yet yeah um, no and we should, yeah, we should it, quickly it, before we run out of time and we, we okay, should also quickly you. mention uh the website is globalelephants.org to for people to find out more, and of course, if they do want to support the work with whatever kind of donation. But anyways, go ahead, Scott, in, in response to the caller. Thank you. And uh, the, the reality is, uh, Brazil is incredibly diverse, as diverse as the United States is in terms of topography and climate. 
we're in a region, the state that we're in is a transition from the Cerrado, the, the savannah, and the south, and the uh, Amazon forest in the north. Uh, and we are more in the savannah. We are more in uh, south of the Amazon rainforest, but we are in the middle of three biomes uh, and have influence from the three biomes uh, or the crux of three biomes. It is the uh, the Pantanal wetlands, uh, the savanna, the Cerrado, and also the Amazon forest. And so we have uh, uh, influence of flora and fauna in all three. Our facility is a uh, it's a near idyllic climate. It very very rarely gets above 95 degrees and very rarely gets below 50 degrees. Uh, that has been a huge cost savings for facility development. It also means the elephants have complete autonomy day and night because it's never too cold that they have to be brought inside. Mm. Uh, so we were really, really fortunate to find this property. It's about 2,800 acres of just idyllic terrain uh, that includes a lot of diversity, natural springs, natural pastures, cultivated pastures, uh, native forests, as, lo- as well as re-emerging forest uh, that the elephants are helping to, to reestablish. It's just an idyllic situation. And as Duncan said, you know, elephants.org, uh, I'm sorry, globalelephants.org, and uh, check it out. And uh, we have a lot of information, a lot of photos about the terrain and topography and, and more about the property. Great. Okay. So we are just uh, in our last moment or two. Um, you've mentioned a couple of different times about sort of like the, the, the um, eagerness, if not zeal, to get as many sanctuaries of this kind together. So um, is there a, is there a, a location in mind for uh, sanctuary number two under the uh, global sanctuary for elephants umbrella? Not really. Uh, you know, we're actually talking to some folks um, in different parts of the world. And, you know, right now what we're, because we still have a few years here before we can fully step away uh, with the development of the property and development of the team. Uh, we're not getting too far ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Uh, but in the process of doing that, we're talking with folks around the globe, uh, trying to offer influence while we can to, to, to try to influence the base, the, the grassroots philosophy of you know, putting elephants first, giving them their voice. It's a huge impact of, of making sure we see them in everything that we're doing um, and trying to influence to, you know, how to best set up an organization to, for long-term success for the elephants and for the, for the, for the, for the association. Well, that sounds, that sounds like it makes perfect sense, Scott. So <clears throat> we've been speaking with Scott Blaze, <clears throat> excuse me, from the Global Sanctuary for Elephants, and again, the facility at the moment is the Elephants Sanctuary. Hold on. Sorry, lost my voice suddenly, which isn't a good thing if you're a radio guy. Anyways, Elephant Sanctuary Brazil. The website, one more time, is globalelephants.org. And uh, Scott, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Again, happy anniversary, and we didn't really have time to have you look ahead too much to the next 10 years, but it sounds like there's more than enough going on at the moment to uh, keep uh, the six elephants, I guess there are currently there, going and healing and uh, you guys are super busy i'm sure doing all those all those great things on their behalf duncan thanks so much for the opportunity i uh, look forward to talking again sometime and you can all stay tuned because the next thing on the horizon not looking 10 years forward is uh hopefully we have the permits arriving for the importation of three more elephants from argentina three our first african elephants uh and again you guys can follow all about it on social media on our website and uh, we're sharing every bit of the journey that's so great thanks again scott good luck to you Thanks, Duncan. We'll look forward to talking soon. For sure, me too. Thanks. In a moment, we'll hear an animal song from Amy Mann. It's Back to the Future here on Talking Animals. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with a guy named Max Rosenblum doing a piece called Dog People in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. I don't know if any of you are uh, dog people. Uh, I feel like you're not a dog person unless you bring your dog in to bring your kid to work day. 
That's when you know you're a dog person. My coworker Jackie loves dogs. She came into work one day, 9 a.m., burst through the door. She's like, Max, you wouldn't believe it. I was out walking Sadie last night, and someone was walking their cat. Someone was walking their cat. And I was like, okay, to be fair, that is unusual. But I find it hilarious that people scoff at the idea of people treating their cats like dogs, but they have no problem at all treating their dogs like humans. Do you know what I mean? It's like, where do you get off being like, I'm sorry, are you walking your cat right now? My dog cannot enjoy his brunch while you're walking your cat right now. It is so distracting. My fully clothed dog cannot enjoy his mimosa with your cat on a leash. You guys have been wonderful. My name is Max Rosenblum. That was Max Rosenblum with a piece called Dog People in today's Comedy Corner. Now it's time to hear an animal song. This is Amy Mann with an ode to a particular breed of dog. Here's Labrador on Talking Animals on WMNF.
That was Amy Mann with Labrador on Talking Animals. And, of course, we have a lab named Daisy, too, not coincidentally. Coming up on WNF, it's Slice of Life, a wonderful new show hosted by Randy Zimmerman. That's coming up momentarily here on WMF. After that, we shift back to music programming with Randy Wynn in for Jim Bannon today, holding forth from 1 to 3, followed by Robin and Cassie from 3 to 6. And our terrific Wednesday night block of Latin music kicks in. Meanwhile, on this show at the moment, it's a prize for Name That Animal Tune. I'll be offering something fabulous from the Talking Animals Vault to the first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song. It's Name That Animal Tune on Talking Animals on WMNF. Take any guesses that might come in after we get off here because we have just about reached into today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. I'll return next Wednesday with another edition of the show. I invite you to visit talkinganimals.net for audio archives of every show we ever podcast, every broadcast, I should say, an Apple podcast available too, as well as on other podcast platforms. Also, links to our social media and more. So that's all at talkinganimals.net. Again, Randy Zimmerman and Slice of Life is up next, followed by Randy went in for Jim Bannon. I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind to animals. Be kind to others. Be kind to yourself. This is Talking Animals on WMNF, Tampa, Camp, Brandon, Clearwater, Largo, Wiki, Wachee, and beyond.